Our reading today is from 2 Kings 2, 1 through 14. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elisha said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep it quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And then Elisha said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary Linda, for reading that passage so beautifully, and uh, what a strange text this is. It's, uh, and it's strange as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, to, um, to find myself on a Sunday where I'm preaching on this, because this is one of those things that as a preacher you, you sort of anticipate the day will come uh, when the chariots of fire sermon will happen, you know. And you have all these ideas of, of what it will be and, and what, what might be in that sermon. And, and um, it's interesting, as, as I've thought about this passage um, in the weeks leading up to it, and, and as I put the sermon together, just to think about how really at the, at the heart of this passage is, uh, is a message about what happens when this life is over. And although, in a way, what happens with Elijah is admittedly really strange, um, it, is, it is also, at the same time, closer to the fate or the destiny of a believer 
than it is unlike the fate or the destiny of a believer. And so, uh, so we're going to get into that. Um, I want to approach this message in a few different ways uh, with kind of maybe a few different thought kind of pegs here. Uh, the first is I want to just walk through the text, what is happening in this passage, um, and then talk, focus in on Elijah's departure, and then talk about um, life after this one. Uh, I've had a week where I've, I've not been well. Uh, I've had some kind of thing that's had me just kind of out of commission. Uh, and one of the things that I can handle being out of commission as long as I can think. And this has been one of those weeks where I couldn't even think. Uh, I, I just, I was good for pretty much nothing, um, except eye candy, you know. And uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, and maybe a little bit of the bug talking. But, um, and I've tested for COVID just so we all know I'm, it's not that. Um, but uh, anyway, I, but it was a week where I, where I, I was lamenting a lot and, and feeling the reality of the frailty. Of, of our bodies, that, that we live in these broken shells and we live in these, these bodies that, that, uh, that come with all manner of, of affliction and, and inconvenience and limitation. Uh, and yet, we've each been given one life and that life is happening now. You're, you're living it and I'm living it. And part of the question for the believer is, is what do we do with this one life we've been given? And what should be the compelling uh, driving force for, for how we decide to spend uh, the life we've been, to not just live it, but to give it away? And, uh, and so what I want to do is I want to I get to that by talking through this passage. It's about a few things, life after death, Elijah's departure from this world, and then the passing of the prophetic mantle from Elijah to Elisha. And so I want to take those in reverse order and start with just what's happening in the passage, Elijah passing the prophetic mantle to Elisha. So Elisha, in a text earlier, was chosen by God to assume Elijah's role as Israel's prophet when Elijah's time was done. And so that time has now come, and so what's, what we're reading here is kind of a farewell tour that Elijah is on, where he's going around and he's visiting these different cities. And so the two go from city to city, from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, and eventually across the Jordan. We're not really told why uh, this is happening, but, but scholars assume two things. First, they assume that uh, original readers of this would have understood why. Um, but what they, what they suggest is that these were cities with prophets because the, the passage talks about when they go into each place, there are these sons of the prophets, which are, are kind of like junior prophets in a way, um, but, they're, but they're maybe prophets who live in that particular area or that particular town that sort of answer to or work under Elijah in some way that's not explicitly clear to us. But this detail is supported by the fact that that these sons of prophets in these towns, they knew prophetic things, like they knew that this was Elijah's time and where they would talk to Elisha about it. And at each stop that they made, Elijah would turn to Elisha and he would say to him, "Um, you stay here, I'm going on. And each time he would do this, uh, Elisha would say, 
ah, that's not going to happen. I'm going to follow you all the way to the end. And he does that. He keeps following him. And this is kind of an old world uh, loyalty test in a way. It's an opportunity for Elijah to let Elisha show his loyalty to him. And so that's what's happening there when he says, I don't want you to come with me anymore. I want you to stay here. In other words, I want you to assume your place with the rest of the sons of the prophets here in this town and let me go and deal with the Lord myself. But that's not what Elisha was willing to do. And so he goes on with them. And each time the sons of the prophets, they come to Elisha and they tell him, you know, the Lord's about to take Elijah to heaven. And each time he gives the same response, which is great. He says, I know, be quiet. Um, three times he says this. Now, this is also uh, kind of an old world way of saying it's not, it's, not, um, it's not right to talk about the dead while they're still alive. It's disrespectful to talk about the dead while they're still alive. And so he says, I know, but let's not talk about this. And then, and then they come to the Jordan River. And there's all kinds of symbolism wrapped up in what happens here. And it's where we see the mantle pass from Elijah to Elisha. So they come to the Jordan River. They have 50 uh, sons of the prophets with them. They've accompanied them. And they stay back while Elijah and Elisha approach the river. And what Elijah does is he takes his cloak and he strikes the water with it, and the water parts. Now that should sound very familiar, because that has happened before. In fact, how many times before has this happened? Twice. What's the significance of the two? The first is when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, right? So he's leading them out of their slavery into the wilderness, parts of the Red Sea. When's the other time it happens? The other time it happens is when Joshua leads the people of Israel from the wilderness into the promised land and he parts the Jordan. And so there's this passing of the mantle there where the mantle of leadership goes from Moses who parts the Red Sea to Joshua who parts the Jordan River. So this parting of the water is symbolic of a couple of things. One um, is it's symbolic of, of leaving one land in life for another. And it's also a demonstration of on whom rests the power of the Lord. And so it was Moses, and then it was Joshua. It was Elijah, and now it's Elisha. And so once they cross over the Jordan River on dry, dry ground, the passage tells us, Elisha asks Elijah for a double portion of the spirit. Again, this is an old world way of saying the, the double portion was the portion that was given to the heir. It was the portion that was given to the firstborn. And so what Elisha is asking when he asks for a double portion is he's not saying, I want twice as much of the spirit as you have. What he's saying is, I want the portion of the spirit that goes to the heir, the heir of who you are and what you're doing. So that's him asking for the mantle of being the lead prophet of Israel to rest upon him. And Elijah says, if you're with me when I go and you see it happen, you'll have it. Which is kind of cool because basically what he's saying is all those times I told you to stay and you said no, you were passing the test. 
and so you're here. And so then Elisha is taken up before Elisha's eyes, and Elijah's cloak falls to the ground as he goes up. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Um, but I want to blow past the chariots of fire thing for a second um, and finish the story with Elijah and Elisha. Because this cloak falls, which I just think, boy, that would look great in a movie, right? The cloak just falling to the ground, the one that had just been used to part the Jordan. And Elisha picks up Elijah's cloak, and when he returns and he goes to the Jordan, he strikes the water with it, and it parts, which is a sign to him and to the others that now he possesses the same power, the same spirit of the Lord, the double portion that Elijah had had. And he gets rid of his old clothes, and now he takes on this new mantle. He's wearing Elijah's robes. It's emblematic for all to see that the prophetic mantle has passed from Elijah to Elisha. So that's what's happening in that passage. I wanted to take some time to explain it because biblical literacy is a, is a really important thing for me as a pastor, and I just think it's interesting because we read passages like this, and it reads really differently from a lot of what we, the way we communicate and the way that we talk, but that's what's happening here in this passage. So let's talk about Elijah's departure for a moment. So his exit is, is really strange because of one particular detail, and it's not a chariot of fire, uh, even though that's a strange enough detail. It's that Elijah doesn't die. He doesn't die in this passage. He just kind of goes away. He goes, he goes up into the sky. His passing is not a death. It's an ascension. That's what happens. He ascends. And so Israel came to believe about Elijah that because he didn't die, he would come back one day. And he would come back with all that prophetic authority and he, would, and he would correct, and he would fix, and he would, and he would overthrow, and he would, and he would lead Israel into, into better days. And so they watched for him. They prepared for his return. They even imagined when certain people would come along that maybe this is Elijah. You remember when Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? What did they say? They said, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say one of the prophets. Why? Why Elijah? Because they were expecting Elijah to come back because he never really, like, died. He's just been kind of up there, whatever that means. And so they would watch for him. In fact, the book of Malachi ends with a promise of Elijah's return, which is a reference to the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, who would make straight the way of the Lord. In fact, it's one of the reasons why it's so significant that John the Baptist is, is the picture that we're given of him as he kind of just sort of emerges from the wilderness. Even though we know he's, he's you know, he was born of Elizabeth and he was a miracle child that, uh, you know, that Elizabeth and Zechariah had been, uh, I think it's Zechariah, had been, had been barren and, and now they have this son. And yet he's out in the wilderness and he, it's just sort of like he steps out of the woods um, onto the banks of the Jordan, interestingly, right? Because he's baptizing in the place where Elijah was taken up. 
And so he has all these callbacks to Elijah. And that passage at the end of Malachi tells us that um, Elijah will return and he will restore the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. Um, which is a passage of scripture that will make you cry if you think about it too long. Because is there any relationship in the world with a greater capacity for pain than the relationship between a child and a father? I don't know of one. And when the Lord speaks of the redemption that he's going to bring, it's going to be the kind of a redemption that will be so restorative and so redeeming that even that relationship, those hearts will turn toward each other. And so that's what's happening there. What's so hard to understand about Elijah's exit is that it doesn't fit with what we presume to know about how life works. Namely, that after we live, we die. A hundred times out of a hundred, we live and then we die. And in Elijah's Elijah's case, after he leaves here, he goes on just to live again. He just lives in the heavenly realm now. So here's the question. Thank you for hanging with me through that exposition of the text because I think there's so much beauty in there. Here's the question that I want to give us. What if? What if what happened with Elijah is actually meant to be the norm? But we're, we're just, we just have from our earthbound perspective, we're so nearsighted that we just can't imagine that kind of a thought. What if we are meant to live and not die? So I had open heart surgery in 2013, and as I was preparing for that, I was asking the, the, the uh, surgeon as, who was going to do the work, I said, so, okay, so you're going to connect me to a machine that's going to do the work of my, my heart and my lungs. And he said, that's right. And I said, so you're going to stop my heart. And he said, yes. <laughs> okay. I said, uh, is it hard to get that thing going again? You know? <laughs> and he said, actually, it's harder to stop it than it is to get it going again. Because the heart wants to beat. It just wants to. He said, in fact, if you took cells from a heart and put them on opposite sides of a petri dish and watched what they do, they'll start to fibrillate in time with each other and they'll move toward each other. Vanderbilt, that's where I got that information. I was like, that's amazing. And he said, well, the body wants to live. And I've thought about that so much that, that, we, that we were not meant to die. We were meant to live and our bodies react that way, our bodies respond that way when we get sick, they rally, they, they bring all kinds of, of things into action that are just kind of laying dormant, waiting for the call um, to fix what's wrong, to get in there to kill things that are trying to kill us. Our bodies are designed in a way that we are meant to live and not die. 
It's why I believe death feels so profoundly wrong when it happens. So let's talk about life after death. With that in mind, with that Elijah didn't die, he just kept living somewhere else. What if that's the way we should think about it normally as believers? What does the Bible teach us about life after this world? We may think, I wish, I wish scripture said more about this, and I do too, but it speaks to this. And so I wanted to share a few verses just to show you places where scripture talks about life after death. So here's, here's the first one from Daniel 12. It says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. What is this passage telling us about the life to come? Here we learn, one, that this life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. There is a life to come that involves judgment. The next verse I want to draw your attention to is Isaiah 26, 19. Get a load of this. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for the earth will give birth to the dead. What do we learn here? Well, here we learn that life after death is not merely a spiritual existence, but it is a bodily one, like Elijah's. Which is why I would say something as outlandish and seemingly weird as maybe we should think of Elijah's fate or his destiny in the way that, we, in the way that would be our own, that we should think, well, that's, that's probably more normal um, than not. Genesis 5.24, this one's about Enoch, um, who also had, he was one of those characters, Enoch, Moses, and Elijah are the three characters in the Old Testament that have these strange departures. Um, and what it says about Enoch is he was walking with God and suddenly he was no more because God took him. What do we learn from that? We learn that God is involved in our departure from this life. That it's not just the collection of cells and organs and blood chemistry and all that that determines living and dying, but that God is involved in that. We see it with Enoch. Suddenly he was no more. Why? Because God took him. Your death, my death, will not be random, and it will not be without significance, nor will anybody else's even though we will most of the time have that significance veiled from our eyes. But God is the author of life. It's not random. Psalm 49, 15. God will redeem them from the grave and he will surely take them to himself. Here we learn that for the believer, 
to die here is to be received by God fully redeemed. Fully redeemed. So that judgment that we read about in Daniel, there's an answer to it. Psalm 73, 24. This is the last one I want to share. There are many more, by the way. But he says this. The psalm says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Again, God is the one doing the taking. And where does he take the faithful? Into glory, into his presence. So God's call on the lives of his people is to himself. F.F. Bruce, a noted Old Testament scholar, biblical scholar all around, he said this. He said, to say that the Old Testament offers the hope of personal fellowship with God beyond the grave. Wait, to say that the Old Testament offers the hope of personal fellowship with God beyond the grave with a real body is not outlandish and it's not incorrect. That hope is a teaching of the text itself. When believers leave this world, it will be for the reasons we just read. It will be because God took us to himself into his glorious presence according to his timeline, fully redeemed. And there we will at some point have bodies that will be suited for that glory. One of the realities that we celebrate when we think about the implication of Jesus' resurrection is how all things will be made new. Scripture tells us there will one day be a new heavens and new earth and there will be the people of God and we will have glorified bodies. And perhaps you've wondered, as I have, what this means. Does it mean that we will have the wisdom of the aged, the bodies of 21-year-olds, the metabolism of teenagers, and the energy of children. It can be fun to try to imagine what our eternal destiny will be like, you know, the geography of it, the, the city of God, our glorified bodies, the sweetness of what a new earth sun-ripened peach would taste like. But we make a mistake if we think that our eternal destiny is something more like a vacation at the beach than home. That's what we're made for. This life that you're living right now and that I'm living right now is a vapor when it comes to eternity. And we will remember it as such, as something that happened quickly. A while back, my parents moved from the farmland of the Midwest to an island off of the Atlantic coast. Uh, and every year since, our family has loaded into the car for a week at the beach. And it's been this amazing thing. You beach people, you get it, right? It's, it's relaxing. It smells funky. Uh, it's magical. It's sunburned noses and pluff mud and 
fresh seafood and dolphins and moonlit beach walks. But guess what happens when we've been there for about a week? When we've been there for about a week, we start to feel a hunger to just to go home. For all the beauty and the fun and the relaxation that the beach has to offer, the place itself can't capture our hearts in the way that home does. Why is this? It's because home isn't just where we keep our things. It is where we experience life. It's where our friends are. Our work is there. Our church is there. And so are our struggles and our worries and our routines. Home is where we belong. It's where we see the flaws in our friends. It's where we see the cracks in our city's foundation. It's where we hurt each other, home. And then consider whether or not to circle back to pursue healing and mending those relationships that are hurt. This side of glory, home, is the place where people most clearly see what Paul describes as my corruption, my dishonor, my weakness. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, what I'm trying to say is my home is where people most clearly see me as I really am. And the same goes for you. But then we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. I'm going to read just portions of it here as we close. This is getting back to that idea of resurrection. Paul writes this. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor It is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, referring to Christ, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This passage doesn't talk about the life to come as though it is an extended vacation in a place that is not our home. It's talking about this. One of the most glorious implications of the resurrection of Jesus is that those whose lives are joined to him in his death and in his resurrection will be changed in such a way that we will be a perfect match for all the glory the new heavens and the new earth call for. In the life to come, we will be at home. So in this life that you're living, and I'm living, it's a vapor compared to eternity. 
And so my application is the life you're living now, give it away. Give it away. See it as all preamble to what's coming, to the chariot ride. Put the worries that crush your soul in perspective. You share Elijah's fate. Just as the heavens and earth will be made new, so will we. And not just our bodies, but our hearts and our perspectives too. We will not be tourists in God's eternal glory. We will be home. Pray with me. Father, part of what makes the passage of Elijah being taken up so hard to understand and accept is that there is a part of us that doubts that there's anything more than the life that we can see and touch and feel and experience now. But your word tells us over and over, even in Genesis, when you create man, you tell us that it's not your will that we should die, but that we should live, and that death is an intruder. It's a, it's a consequence of the fall. It's the wage of sin, not the natural order of things. It's why the cells of the heart find each other, because we were made to live and not die. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Help us to have a view of eternity that is informed by the promises of your word, that we would put the cares and the anxieties and the fears and the hopes and the dreams and the ambitions and everything else of this life into the perspective that it matters, but it's quick. And so, Lord, we, we give you thanks for the promises of your word that tell us that what happens beyond this life that we know is not only more than we can comprehend, but it's better. And so, Lord, let us rest in that and put all other things in perspective because of that. And we confess that we look forward to seeing your servant Elijah. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.